Good evening. It's my emergency Bible. Hope y'all had a good fourth. I truly did. I got some rest. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, um, for you load us daily with benefits, Lord, and well, we don't come to the study just to get more knowledge. We come to the study to know you, Lord. And know you, Lord, is through the knowledge of your word. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that your word would be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, Lord. And give us wisdom, Lord, in the days we live in. Pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, Lord. Show us your ways. Teach us your ways. Keep us, Lord, in the days we live in, that we could be a light in a dark world, Lord, that you would show us, Lord, how to walk circumspectively, Lord, in the days we live in, redeeming the times, knowing that the days are evil. And so, Lord, we live in lawless times, Lord. We live in the days, Lord, where there's no respect for life, Lord. And so, Lord, pray for those families out in Southwest Philly. Lord, and, and pray, Lord, for all those, Lord, who lost somebody through senseless violence in the city, Lord. Uh, pray, Lord, for revival, Lord. We know that the Holy Spirit can be poured out, Lord, and that not only will the church, Lord, uh, be overflown with your grace, but, Lord, that we could reach lost people, that they could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and turn and be saved. And so, Father, give us all opportunity to share Jesus Christ. Teach us, Lord. And so, Father, as we study tonight, Lord, let your word come alive for us, that we bear fruit, some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. And as David prayed, let the words in my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, I do pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As we go through the second Kings, I want to take my time. I'm going a chapter at a time. There's a lot of good stuff in these chapters that I want us to explore, you know. When you study the Bible, you know, you study, we teach verse by verse is expositional teaching. Exegesis, you know, you take what the verse say and you say, this is what it's saying. And, and you try to, sometimes you have verses that are parallel to these verses or compatible to the verse to make it make more sense. And, and so when you study Kings, it's so important to take your time through the book of Kings, most scholars believe that Jeremiah wrote it. Um, that's a possibility when you read 2 Kings, especially when you get to the end of this book. The last three or four chapters, you start realizing that he may have had something to do with it. And, but when you study this, it's interesting that these two characters and come full strength to us. You know, one going off the scene, scene on, in 1 Kings. Kings, because it was just one book. It was never two books. First Kings and Second Kings were one, was one work. But one prophet goes off the scene named Elijah. You know, Elijah is an interested man that he was more of an isolated man. You know, he had locks. We don't know, was he a Nazarite? We don't know for sure. We don't know a lot about him. Elijah, you know, he comes from nowhere and he comes on the scene and, you know, says there will be neither rain or dew except at my word in First Kings 17. And then he sort of lives his life through and he gets taken up 
from out of the earth, a chariot of fire, chariot fire horses, and so forth, and he's gone. And then God loved the nation of Israel so much. And this is where you always got to look at the, the Bible and the nation of Israel and God's love for his people, is that God loved the nation of Israel so much that he raised up another prophet, another voice for them to hear from God's throne to, the, to their ears. And so, so important when you see these prophets come up, they're not just some Bible figure. You say, oh, no, this is God speaking to a nation that is in a sinful state, and he pours out his love through these oracle prophets who they didn't write books. They're not like Isaiah, you know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, but they are, you know, prominent in the Bible and what they have to say. So now Elijah is coming to the full picture and, and there's, there's recorded at least 20 miracles uh, or more that this prophet will perform. Only Jesus Christ performed more miracles in the Bible. Nobody else performed more human being only. In the Bible performed more miracles than Elijah. You know, the last time we saw a miracle that he performed, it, you know, it was his third miracle. His first miracle was, of course, when he, you know, crossed the Jordan. <laughs> the Jordan opened and he went back the other way. Then he threw, the second one was he threw salt in the water and the water became useful. And then his third miracle was when you read at the end of chapter 2 when it says that how he was, he was mocked by these kids and they were, they were laughing at him and they said, you know, then he, when he went, in, he went up from there to Bethel and as he was going up to the road, some youth came from the city and, and mocked him and said, go up, you bald head. Remember that last week? Go up, you bald head. I took it personal. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. This is a miracle. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled, the four, mauled 42 of the youths. It just says 42. That don't mean it was just 42. Some of them may have gotten away. Then he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. So that was, so he, that was a miracle within itself. That, you know, going up big ball there, you know, like teasing them about mocking God's word, you know, that Elijah went up, and they tell him, you go up to where Elijah was with your bald head self, you know. <laughs> Imagine me hearing that if I was walking by somebody, you know. And so the prophet Elijah's ministry is, is an extraordinary one. He, unlike Elijah, who was more isolated, is much more involved in various affairs within the nation. He was known, it's interesting, he was known in Israel, he was also known in Judah, but he was also known in Syria. When you read 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 7, he was also known in Syria as the man of God. Elijah was known for being a servant of the Lord. You will know that when we get to verse 11 of this chapter, when it says that, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. So we also see in these chapters the integrity of this man. He's a wonderful man, was a prophet serving the Lord, not for profit, because he took nothing when they tried to give him something for just simply serving the Lord. When we get to 2 Kings 5, 16, he refused to take anything from Naaman. And but so he just simply loved the Lord. He wasn't in it for fame. He wasn't in it to be some great person that everybody looked to him and all these things. He he lived to do the will of the Lord and to please the God of Israel. 
the only true and holy God. So this is Elisha. What a remarkable man. And so verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Now in Jehoram, some places it's spelled Joram, J-O-R-A-M. Here is Jehoram, same person. The son of Ahab became king over Israel as Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. So he reigned 12 years. Some say he reigned from 852 B.C. to about 841 B.C. Different dates, you know. But 12 years we know he reigned. It's interesting that this is the brother of Ahaziah. His name is an interesting name because his name means Jehovah. Imagine having this wonderful name. Jehovah is exalted. That's what his name means. Jehovah is exalted. He's the second son of Ahab, and his mother was, of course, Jezebel. Because remember, Ahaziah, his brother, didn't have any sons when he died, so his brother took his place. And so this Ahaziah's brother, you know, becomes king. He's the 10th king of the northern tribe. But don't get him confused, because people do get this confused. He has the same name as Jehoshaphat's Son, who would be the fifth king of Judah in the southern kingdom, and we people think he gets you know get these guys mixed up. Jehoshaphat's son name is Jehoram, or Joram, same name, but his son is mentioned in Matthew chapter one verse eight in the genealogy of Christ, but not this one right here. He's in the northern kingdom, but the one in the southern kingdom is you know the son of Jehoshaphat. But this is Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of um, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. Notice what it says. Same testimony for all the kings of the north. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. His name is Jehovah is exalted. He did evil in the sight of Jehovah. He did evil in the sight of, you know, he did the devil work. You take evil and put a D in front of it, what do you get? Devil. Never thought about that, did you? Evil, D, devil. <laughs> he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's interesting. With a name like that, he, he didn't live up to the expectations of his name. Jehovah's exalted and it says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But notice, but not like his father and mother. Ahab and Jezebel. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. So he did put away the image of Baal. The Septuagint, which is Greek, the Vulgate is written in Latin, and the Arabic says pillar. You know, the, the pillar. The idol, had, you know, this idol had like a paganistic fertility rite in a sense. Connotation. So he says, pillar, you know, Second Chronicles 34, you know, 4, pillar. He broke down the, all the altars of Baal in, in his presence. So we can put away, it's an interesting thing. You can put away things in our own lives. We can put those things away in our own lives that are sinful, yet still live in sin. Isn't that interesting? Because, look, he, did, he didn't do like his mother and father did, for he put away the sacred pillar, pillar of Baal that his father had made. 
but he still did evil in the sight of the Lord. So you know, sometimes you say, man, oh my God, man, I got rid of lying. I don't lie no more, man. Stop that lying, but I don't lie. But I still gossip. I got rid of fornication, man. I don't fornicate no more. No, I ain't doing But drinking like a fish. I don't steal no more. I don't steal no more. I, st I don't steal for nothing. I don't steal for nobody. Gambling every Friday night. So we can put away one thing that's, you know, that's, that looks good to people. But it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord saw both spectrums of it. He saw him putting away Baal, the pillars, and then he also saw the evil that he did after Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, you know, which was worse. You know how, and it says, look, nevertheless, he persisted, Jehoram, persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. He persisted, you know, in, it says in the sins, this word sins 296 times in the, in the Old Testament is mentioned in Leviticus 82 times, is mentioned in Numbers about 43 times, and it's the same word that has something to do with a sin offering. If Jeroboam, if Jehoram rather, would have offered a sin offering unto the Lord, his life would have been so much different. If he went down to Jerusalem, not where the man-made worship was, not the place where they man-made worship, you know, he's in the worship, there are two places. Look, Jeroboam built this temple, all these shrines in Dan, which was north, farthest north. Dan, which means judge. Then he built another one in Bethel, which means house of God, judge, the house of God, and, and with, with golden calves representing God's presence. He instituted a new worship practice in Israel. A new worship practice at these two temple locations, claiming and making the people believe that they were still worshiping God as, you know, their brethren was in Jerusalem. That's what he was claiming. saying, look, you're still worshiping God. You're still worshiping God. And they wasn't because we're in Jerusalem at the Ark of the Covenant. You had the showbread. You know, you had the Holy of Holies there. You know, and, and it was all a lie. It was all a lie from 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25 through 33. It was all a lie. And this happens in the world today. Whereas people can come to a place that is called the house of God. You can come to a place that is called the house of God. Amen? I said, I'm in a house of God. But the God of the Bible is not even worship, nor is his word taught. If God's word is not taught, is it a house of God? Because you can come to the God of the house when you're ready to receive the God of the house, but you can come to a building that they call the house of the God and never get the God of the house. And people live like that. They say, I went to church today, man. I, well, what did they teach you? I don't know, but we had a high time in the Lord. Well, what, what did you learn? What did you learn from the Bible? Why would I want to know that? We had fun. They were shouting. They was dancing. And everybody did laps around the church. And everybody was doing laps. And everybody's got to get a hundred, got to get a hundred, got to get a hundred. And everybody did all the things that were was religious things. 
And it seemed like they went to the house of God. Look, that's what happened to the nation of Israel. They replaced the worship of God with a new place of worship that they said they were worshiping God when they were worshiping idols. They were worshiping idols. So Jehoram, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So Jehoram was still a sinful man, although he didn't completely choose the sins of his father and mother, Ahab and Jezebel, but he still did evil in the sight of the Lord. And once we know and come to learn right from wrong, I don't care who you are, if you know right from wrong, we can't blame our parents for our sins that we commit. We can't say, well, I grew up like that, and that's, why I, that's my mom, you know. No, we can't. Once you know right from wrong, in fact, Ezekiel chapter 18 said, let not this proverb be mentioned among you. That's why when people talk about, well, generational curse, well, hold up. When is it broken? Because Christ became cursed for us. Christ became cursed for us. When you hear the theology of this doctrine or this ideology of generational curse, it's not mentioned in the Bible. Because each person give account unto themselves and to the Lord. James, who was the Lord's half-brother, James in James 4.17, he says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Not to them it is sin, but to him it is sin. To an individual. If you sin, the soul that sin, not the souls, plural, the soul, singular, that sins, shall die. And it says, it's two edicts in the Bible, the soul that sins shall die, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever individual calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. So it's interesting when people say, oh, man, you know what, man, you know, he did this because, you know, it's, it was handed. No, he did this because he wanted to do it. You ask the average person, why do you sin? There's no theology, theological answer for that. He said, why did you sin? Because I wanted to. I can't blame, my mom has gone off to heaven, and I'm going to blame her for every mistake I make. Well, it was the way I was raised. That's why I curse everybody out on Tuesdays. That's just crazy. And it says, now Misha, his name means safety, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, Amos 1.1, and he regularly paid the king of Israel, this is a tribute, an annual tribute, the king of Israel, 100,000 lambs and, and the wool of 100,000 rams. 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. It's a lot of coats they had, and sure, and <laughs> cotton blankets. You know. But it happened when Ahab died. It doesn't say when Ahaziah died, which is interesting. When Ahab died, that the king of Moab rebelled. And here it means that he refused to pay this tribute against the king of Israel. This was common for a nation who paid tribute uh, under one king, and when that king died, and they would test his successor and say, look, let's not pay him nothing. See what happened. Let's not pay him anything. See what happened. So King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. He enlisted an army here. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me, Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. 
I am as you are, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. This sounds like the same reply Jehoshaphat had Ahab, remember? In 1 Kings chapter um, 22, when he said that I am as you are, my people, your people, my horses, your horses. And now he's saying the same thing. It seems like King Jehoshaphat would have learned his lesson at this point. Messing around with these kings of the north. Last time it almost got him killed, remember, with Ahab. And he formulated a relationship with Ahaziah in the second, you know, Chronicles 20, verse 37. It seemed like he would have learned his lesson. You ever had to learn a lesson the hard way, any of Your mom said, I want you to hang with those kids. And then they come and raid the corner, every locked up, and you do too. I want you to hang with those kids. I don't want you. My mom wouldn't want us to hang with anybody. You know, a kid father got locked up one time. My mom called Wiz down the street playing with the kids. It's just the kids. She's screaming, get out here. You know his father just got locked up. Like, what does that got to do with the kids? They always thought about protecting you a certain way. And here Jehoshaphat, he's just kind of like one of these kind of guys. Oh, no, we all brothers. We all like, you know, we... You know, initially, you all, you know, from Abraham, we all brothers and so forth. But he was making these allegiance and these alignments, rather, with these ungodly kings in the north. And it says that then he, King Jehoshaphat, said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by a way of the wilderness of Edom. This would be coming from the south through Judah crossing the Jordan River, the southern end of the Dead Sea. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, who was more than likely a vessel king, maybe appointed by Jehoshaphat. And they marched on that around about route seven days. And there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, at last, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. What kind of faith did he have? Then Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elijah, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. This custom of a servant pouring water from a vessel on his master's hands to wash, signifying, you know, general personal attendance. And he was a servant. Elijah, one of the things about being a man of God is you must be a servant. You have to, God always uses people that love his word and people that's willing to serve. And here he poured, you know, this is how he's described. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with them. How did he know that? He was in the southern kingdom. How did he know that? Jehoshaphat is saying this because he realizes that if Elijah was a servant of Elijah, therefore he knew for certain that Elijah was a man of God. The word of the Lord is with them. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Here we have these three kings, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and an unknown king of Edom. Then Elijah said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? 
Go to your, he's talking to, um, this is interesting. He's talking to Jehoram, who worshiped false gods. He says, what am I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother, meaning those false prophets, the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah, you know, ate at the table of Jezebel, all these false prophets. He says, go to them. But the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Jehoram is blaming God for his dilemma. Isn't that something? They don't have any food. They didn't bring enough water for the cattle and the herds and so forth that they were traveling with to eat and so forth. He's blaming God for this dilemma. Isn't it strange how sinners always seem to blame God for their troubles? But never ever do they own up to the false idols and gods that they worship. Isn't it strange? When people don't know God, they always blame God. If God was a God of love, how could he let this happen? He is a God of love. People are just evil. You won't hear journalists on the newscast today say the word evil. They don't use those kind of words. Or wicked, those are words off limits. They're unpolitically correct words. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, who was a descendant of David, of course. Jehoshaphat is a descendant of David in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. And at the end of his life, he was considered a good king. When we get to, um, you know, at the end of his life. I will not look at you. I wouldn't even look at you if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat, nor see you. Elijah's saying if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat, he wouldn't even, even be bothered with this king. Imagine telling the king of the nation of Israel that to their face. The person that had authority to get your head cut off. Isn't that something? Elijah known how ungodly he was and how evil he was, and he continued to even in sight of the Lord. Elijah wanted no part of this man, let alone have him in his presence. He says, get out of my face. <laughs> get out of my face. Who would dare talk to the king like that except the man of God? This may have been Elijah's first meeting with this man, with this king, Jehoram. But unlike those quack diviners and false prophets who were paid to say the right things, Elijah inserts stinging words of denunciation. He said, no, no, no. Listen, let me tell you something. You know, you're living right. If it wasn't for this godly king named Jehoshaphat, you wouldn't even be in my proximity, let alone me talking to you. Who would talk to a president like that? Who would talk to an emperor or a ruler or a dictator of a, of a known of a you know of, of a known nation or a powerful nation? Who would talk to the president of Russia like that, or, or the you know the president of North Korea? Who would dare say these things? Not trying to be accepted by this ungodly king or trying to be politically correct, and he wasn't trying to be diplomatic neither. He said, you're an evil man. He's shown us that he is a brave, fearless messenger of the living God, the King, Almighty God, you know, the Holy One. Who's this King, strong and mighty in battle? Elijah was not afraid. Look, look, it says the bold, you know, is, is the, the, the boldness, uh, those who are bold are right to the righteous, as bold as a lion, it says in, in um, 
um, Proverbs 28. And it says that, that the wicked flee when no one pursues. That the righteous is bold as a lion. When you're not bold, you know what happens? The fear of the man becomes a sneer. The fear of the man becomes a sneer. I'll trust in the Lord. What can man do to me? You read Psalm 118, verse 8, and you read those verses. Psalm 56, verse 11, you read, you go through the Bible and you start realizing that they would trust in the Lord even if it meant that they would lose their entire life because they were not afraid to stand and tell people the truth. We live in a culture today, even in the church, people are afraid to tell people the truth. Well, I don't have nothing to do with that. I don't have nothing to, they're afraid to tell people the truth. Afraid. Some pastors, they will not teach the truth. They will find a way to weasel out teaching the truth. The people might be offended. The giving might go down. I might lose some people. They're not your people anyway. It says, feed the flock of God, which is among you as overseers. <laughs> not for filthy lucre. Not, you know, they're not our people. We just get a chance to stand. I get a chance to stand before y'all and teach the Bible, but I don't own nobody in here. I have authority of nobody's faith. And he's a brave man. And it says, he says, but now bring me. This is Elijah saying. He says, you guys are getting on my nerves so bad. Bring me a musician. You know, King James says minstrel. He needed some praise and worship music to settle him down. Like, give me some music, you know. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure. <laughs> you know? He said, bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon this epi of the Septuagint, upon him. And he, meaning Elijah, said, this is while the music is still playing, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. He's telling them what to do. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall, nor shall you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water. No rain, no nothing, no wind, but you'll be filled. So that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple or light matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. In other words, the Lord can provide for us in the wilderness, in the parched places, in the desolate places. This is only a simple, light manner in the sight of the Lord who provides. He can provide for us in this journey of this soldier we call life. Did you realize that? He can provide for his own. Jesus fed the 5,000. Every gospel writer mentions the feeding of the 5,000. Every, you know, Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. Mark 6, 35. Luke chapter 9, verse 12. John chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. All of the gospels mention the feeding of the, of the 5,000. And Matthew says 5,000 men besides women and children. More than likely, they're close to fifteen or 20,000 people he fed. And John tells us that it was just a, a little boy who had a hefty lunch, you know, two, a few, you know, two fish and five loaves. And they said, well, what is this? And Jesus told, you know, Philip, you know, you feed him. He says, we only have 200 denarii worth. You know, what is that among so many? And Jesus says, and the Bible says, and John says, he knew what he would, he would tested Philip because he knew what he, he knew what he would do. What is two plus two? 
Come on. What is two times two? Right? What is one plus one? What is one times one? What is three plus three? What is three times three? What is ten plus ten? Twenty? Y'all don't know your math, huh? Twenty? What is ten times ten? See how God does? He multiplies. The numbers could be the same, but he can do more. So don't go by the numbers. Go by the God we serve. Never look at the numbers. Stop calculating your life. We calculate too much like we some GPS or something. Recalculate and recalculate. We live that way all of our life. And here is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. This is nothing for him to, to feed them in the parched places in the wilderness, in the places in the valley, out in the field somewhere where there's nothing there. He says, just dig some ditches and look, you won't see the wind or the rain, but there will be water for your cattle to eat and for you to drink. God can do that. Do y'all know that he's a supernatural God? So the things that he do that is normal to us, they miracles to him. This is, this, is, this is who I am. This is who I am. He said, well, I don't have enough money to pay this. God said, really? Don't worry about that. I don't know I'm going to make it. Don't worry about that. Well, how are we going to do this? Don't worry about that. Well, how are we going to pay for that? We can't afford it. You know, don't worry about that. I'm Jehovah, you know, Jireh. The Lord is our provider. And he says that, look, no good thing, absolutely not one good thing does he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Not one good thing. The Bible says he loves us daily with benefits. Don't live your whole life trying to calculate. Don't live your whole life looking at the odds. <laughs> How's that possible? It is possible because we serve an impossible God. The things that are, that are impossible to men are possible to God. And here Jehoram, he's like, you know, Elijah didn't want nothing to do with him. But he says, no, no, no. And this is a simple, this is a light matter in the sight of God, the Lord. He uses Jehovah, the national name for the God of Israel. In the sight of the Lord, he will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. He didn't say that the Lord will deliver them from the hand of the Moabites. But he would deliver them into your hand. Not from the Moabites, but the Moabites into your hand. God is handing them over to, you know, the, the enemy. And he's doing all this work. He's handing the enemy over to his people. It's interesting. Because look what it says in the next verse. And this is Elijah talking. And also you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city. And shall cut down every good tree and stop of every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. You might look at this and say, what? Elijah is giving them instructions for war. God's people would be the aggressor. He's saying, look, not the enemy. So for us, as God's people, we should never be on defense. Remember, God is the one way back in the garden. God declared war on Satan. Satan didn't declare war on God. 
Satan didn't declare war on God. God is the one who says, I will put enmity between you and the woman I will, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his hell. God declared war on the enemy, not the enemy on God. So Elijah says, you shall attack every fortified and choice city. We would have been like, well, we don't, well how are we going to do all that, Lord? You, this is way too hard. How are we going to do all that? How, Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says, you know, surely we will crush Satan under our foot. And, you know, we look at the, we look at the Bible sometimes. You know, we think, a lot of Christians think this, that Satan has more power than God. Or they think they're kind of equal. Like, they, they kind of equal, you know, like, it's the devil, and then it's Jesus. And they kind of like, you know, they, they kind of, no, they're not. Satan was created. He was created by God. Before he was, Jesus says, I was. He said to Abraham, before, look, before the world even began, I was. Everything is made by me. Everything that consists is because of me. Don't keep giving the devil too much credit. Because he loves to make us imagine stuff, how bad it's going to be. You ever thought something going to be real bad and then you get there, it's nothing like you thought it was? That's why people get so fearful and trepidatious when they go to the doctor. <laughs> you go to the doctor, you're like, yeah, I got to go to the doctor tomorrow. You're telling everybody, hope nothing happened. I'm going to the doctor. You'll win tomorrow. Well, what you going to do? I don't know what they're looking for, but I'm going. <laughs> well, what's going to happen? I don't know. And the doctor said, oh, you know what I see? Oh, look at this. Oh. No, no, no. My life is in the hand of God. You understand that? You better understand that. It says, now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered, the male offering, that suddenly water came by way of Edom, and the land was filled with water. They didn't have any water at first, right? And when all the Moabites, now, remember Ruth was a Moabite, David's great-grandmother, his grandmother, she was a Moabite, remember? The Moabites, there were 25 times mentioned in the Bible, you know who the Moabites came from. Remember where they came from? Lot with his incestuous relationship with his daughter in the cave in Genesis chapter 19, verse 37. They had this son called, you know, Moab. And then he had a brother named Ben-Ame, you know. So it's the Moabites. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings, meaning these three kings, had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered. These are all the they had boys, men, all the males of the nation of, of, of Moab. And they stood at the border. Then there rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water, right? And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red blood. Now, Edom means red. So as they arose in the morning, they saw this water as blood in the way of that the sun was reflecting upon it. However, this wasn't their, this wasn't their enemy's blood like they thought. The three kings that was coming up against them, they thought it was their blood. But this would be a reflection of their own blood they saw, a reflection of their own fate. So, when, so they looking and they see all this water and it's the way the sun shone. It looked like it's just so pools of blood everywhere. They say, Oh, man, these guys must have killed themselves. They must be so scared of us, man. They wouldn't kill themselves. Look at the next verse. 
So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. See, they was greatly deceived. I missed the verse, verse 23. And they said, meaning the Moabites, this is the blood the kings of, of the kings having surely struck their swords and have killed one another. Now therefore Moab, Moab, um, says, therefore, now therefore Moab to the spoil. And they say, take the spoil. Are they all dead? And look, it says, so when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose them. Now they all in the camp because they're looking at all this water. It's water. It's not blood. They run in to get all the spoil. Israel comes up. That's how God ambushed them. Rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them and they entered their land killing the Moabites. Then they destroyed the cities, and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land, and it filled it, like Isaiah told them. I mean, like Elijah had told them in verse 19. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees, but they left the stone of Kerhareseth, Kerhareseth intact. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. Imagine someone constantly throwing stones over a wall in the city. This is exactly what Israel was doing. They, they was constantly throwing stones over this wall. Constantly throwing stones over the wall. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, notice, he took with him 700 men who drew the swords to break through the king of Edom, but they could not. Not in the pagan world, when they lost the battle, it was because their gods were angry with them. That's what they believed. So believers think that way today. That whenever something goes wrong, then God, he's angry with me. He's trying to get me back for something I did 20 years ago. This is, I did this when I was 18, and God's getting me back at 37 or something like that. Oh, I should have never did that, man. I and he's getting me back for something else. That is not how God works in our life. It's not that does. No, when we get saved, we are forgiven of all of our sins. I'm not saying that it's not consequences of our sins on the other side. But he's not out to get us back. He's not out to get us back because we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We know that. Moreover, whom he did predestined, them he also called, and whom he called he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. God is not trying to get you back for something you did 16 years ago. Like, you come and we can, we can't wait to get you. I'll get you back. Remember that day you stole that quarter? Well, I'm going to make sure somebody stole 100 quarters from you. He's not trying to get you back like that. You know, some of the things we sowed because of his grace, because of his mercy, and because of his kindness, we've never reaped them. We've never reaped them. We don't know how that worked, but he came in somehow and intervened and said, nope, that one, nope, I covered it in my blood. That one, my son, who was the propitious one, who satisfied my wrath when he went to the cross, that one I paid for, I covered that one. Do you know, if we got, that's why mercy is so important. You know, you read Psalm 136, you know, 
26 times they talk about mercy in that psalm. They'll say one stanza is written in Hebrew acrostic poetry. And then the next stanza, they'll say, his mercy endures forever. They'll say one stanza, then the next stanza, his mercy endures forever. All out through that psalm, like 26 times, it says his mercy endures forever. We do not get what we deserve. Y'all should be like, amen. Amen? We should be all happy about that. And so it says in verse 27, then he, Misha, took his eldest son, and look how cruel these pagans are, who would have reigned in his place and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was a great indignation in Israel, not against Israel, in a great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. Notice what it says. He took his son up as his eldest son. So he offers his son up to Ashtar Chemosh. That's the god of the Moabites. And this is his son who would reign in this place. And what he ends up doing, he cuts him into pieces and burns him to death. Flavius Josephus, a, Jew, a Jewish historian, tells us that he was an adult child. This is satanic. Imagine taking your son, putting him on the altar, and chopping them all up and burning them up as a burnt offering. This is satanic. And then it's noted that Misha said his God, Chemosh, Chemosh, gave him favor after being appeased with the sacrifice that Israel turned back, you know, turned back to defeat. After he sacrificed his son, Israel turned back into defeat. Because he's thinking he sacrificed his son to this God, you know, this God, Ashtar Chemosh. Once he sacrificed this God, Israel turned back because he made the sacrifice. They turned back because it was disgusted at what he did. It was disgusting. But that's not true. The nation of Israel seeing this, they were appalled at the sickening act of a father, his own son. But you know what? God allowed them to see that. Not for them to return back. I don't believe that. I believe God made them see that, hoping that they would turn from their own gods and idols that they worshipped. That's why he allowed them to see it. So they would turn back. You know, sometimes you see something so awful, and you say, oh, that's all horrible. And God is saying, yeah, I'm just showing you, you not to never do it. So some of the things we see that are horrific or things that are bad or things that are, you say, oh, that person got jealous about this or this and that. God said, but don't you never do that. And if it was so horrific, don't it seem like Israel that went back and repented and said, let's get rid of the shrines in Dan and in Bethel. And, and every, the, the only God we're going to worship is not Ashtar, Chemosh, and, you know, Ashtar, none of the gods of the pagan world, Malkon, you know, Molech, none of those gods we're going to worship no more. We're going to worship only a true and living God. And Jehoram, you know, Jehoram, he was there. He, he should have realized that God was speaking to him, I'm sure. This is disgusting. He hacked his own son up on the wall. And God's probably saying, no, no, no. Go back and get rid of all those other idols. Get rid of all those places that you allow to be places you call houses of worship. Some things that disgust us that we see, even in a place that calls a house of worship, God's saying, don't you ever do that. Don't you ever do that. There's some places I've been in some churches and I see some things go on, especially before the days of Calvary. I've seen some stuff go on, 
And the Lord was, you know, as you know, come in the ministry, and these are things that always come to my remembrance. And the Lord reminds me, don't you ever do that. They were not given to me for me to say how bad they were. They were given to me as a warning for me not to never do. Because the person that did what they did, they're going to pay for it anyway. So some things we see, that's not for God to say, oh, look how awful they are. And God say, no, no, no. You got that same traitor within your own heart. Don't you do it. Don't you do it. Don't you ever do it. Don't you ever do it. Look, in the August of 1868, the Moabite stone was found in Dibbon, 20 miles east of the Dead Sea. This stone was a bluish um, bisalt stone, about four feet high, two feet wide, and about 14 inches thick, with an inscription from King Misha. It's in the museum in Paris, France now, to this very day. There are 32 lines written on the stone by Misha, the Moabite king, where he describes this battle from his perspective, not from the Bible. It says, in describing of this battle, he says that when he offered up his son on that high wall, that this is when Chemosh gave them favor and the army of Israel departed. That's what he wrote on the inscription. He think when they departed that he had victory over Israel, that his God had Israel depart. How foolish and blind is the world. How foolish. Although we know that this is not the reason why they left. Nobody has the right to take nobody's life. Nobody. Nobody has the right to take life. Nobody. Anytime somebody takes somebody's life, they never have peace. You'll never have peace if you take somebody's life. You won't have it. It don't matter how you do it. It's just something that happens when you take life. You'll never have that peace. And God can give it to you if you lean on him, but somebody that takes a person's life, they walk around with this sense of something wrong. Because look, the, look, the blood, the life of the blood, you know, is in, in the life of, of life is in the blood. You know, it says in um, Leviticus 17, 11, that you, you'll never have that peace. You'll never have it. You know, Cain, remember, he killed his brother. He says, God said, you can have victory over this, but no. And he ended up being, you know what he ended up being? A vagabond and a fugitive. We're soldiers and pilgrims, but the lost world is vagabonds and fugitives. I was on the run, you see. Without a real family, you know, we have a real family. Isn't it good we have a real family here? We can all come worship together, we laugh together, we eat together, we smile together, sing together. We have a real family in this church. We are so blessed and don't even realize it. And sometimes you come here, you be like, thank God. You know, you leave work, you're around people all day. Thank you, Lord. And you see somebody in church, you're like, man, I don't know what agenda they have, but it's better than the one I just left. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up as we pray and sing this last song. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these lessons, the value of you giving us your word, Lord. Lord, thank you for the things we could see with our eyes, Lord, only for us to never perform with our hands. So Lord, give us wisdom in the days we live in. Lord, many are called, but few are chosen. Lord, let us be the ones that are chosen. Let us 
walk in such a way, Lord, that we let the world know we belong to you, Lord. We need you, Lord, in the days we live in. We need you. Lord, we don't need all the things the world's given us. The world wants us to have the new this and this and take this vacation and buy this car and do this. And Lord, we need you. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, give us grace. Help us. Teach us. Teach us to number our days. Lord, but let us gain a heart of wisdom and realize, Lord, that this world is falling apart. And because we are the light and the salt, let us proclaim the gospel. Never let let Satan, Lord, accuse us of our past, Lord, but let us proclaim truth wherever we go, Lord. He wants us to make it predicated on our good. We're not good. You're good. And we belong to a good God. And we love you and we honor you and we praise you. In your great name we pray for your sake. Amen. Amen. You love the Lord. Give the Lord a big hand tonight if you love Jesus.